This is Agri-Futures On Air, brought to you by Agri-Futures Australia, driving innovation in Australian agriculture. Unfortunately, the news that 58 people lost their lives in accidents on Australian farms in 2020 is not the stuff that major headlines are made of. Why? Because 58 people, the same number, lost their lives in accidents on Australian farms in 2019. So no real change, and it happens year after year. But to me, the fact that the number of deaths is the same is quite disturbing. Why haven't they gone down? After all, it's not as if farm safety is a new issue. It's been high on the agenda for many years. So on this podcast, I'd like to try to answer that question. Why the number of deaths on farms remains high and why haven't we been able to reduce that number substantially? Now, I'm not the expert, but I'm joined by two people who I'm sure can help me understand what's happening. Andrew Barrett is the Executive Officer of the Rural Health and Safety Alliance, of which AgriFutures Australia is a partner. Andrew, without doubt, is a farm safety professional, working over the past 14 years across a number of industries and corporate entities. He even has his own safety podcast. And Paul Daniel is a grain grower from the mid-north of South Australia. Paul has taken a keen interest in safety on farms in his roles with Grain Producers Australia and in the past as a board member of the Grain Handler by Terra Australia. Paul, now I know Andrew's going to jump on me for saying this, but aren't farms simply risky places to be? Because I bet you, as a grain grower, have had some close calls over the years. Yes, I have, Chris, and yes... Farms are dangerous places to be. We operate with a variety of machines under a variety of conditions. So yes, they are dangerous places to be. And the statistics that you've talked about there with 58 deaths bear that out. Andrew, take me through some of the latest figures from 2020 in terms of deaths and injuries, if you have them. Is it, is it safe to assume that quad bikes are still the leading cause of death? Yeah, for over a decade, quad bikes, tractors, utes, motorbikes, so the, the category of vehicles in general in, in whatever production system you're in have remained as the most dangerous in inverted commas pieces of equipment you can be using in a primary production business. And side-by-sides are starting to enter the picture. Yeah, they are, which doesn't necessarily indicate that side-by-sides are more dangerous necessarily, but that there have only been a very small proportion of the overall market compared to quad bikes. So it's not unusual to find that no device, no vehicle is inherently safe. And so, yeah, side-by-sides often are an alternative to other vehicles. And so they are starting to appear in the statistics a little bit more. We've been talking about quad bike accidents for years. Do you have any information on the cause of those accidents? Now, uh, you know, from our general knowledge, rollovers is a big issue and people are being crushed. But have you seen any, say, a common reason, something that just seems to happen time and again, why people are putting themselves into positions where a quad can roll over? 
Yeah, the evidence for this is actually really, really compelling. And so despite the fact that there are some people in the market and organisations who would like to argue otherwise, the evidence is very, very clear that a quad bike that is used beyond its operating limits, to kind of use a technical term, becomes a very, very dangerous piece of equipment. And so examples of that are overloading a quad bike. So if you think if you've got, say, bags of fertiliser on it, if you've got a spray unit that's particularly full, if you've got other people on the quad bike or if you're in an area where it's very slopey and so the centre of gravity of the quad bike changes. The operator of the quad bike, obviously their competency and familiarity is a risk factor and also the physical size of a person. So putting a child on an adult quad bike, these are all things that we know the evidence is very, very clear that they substantially increase the risk associated with these devices. And have they all caused death at some point in the past? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there's very, very good evidence, very good understanding about that, given that it is one of the most prevalent causes of fatality and serious injury. Let's not forget, you know, people whose lives are very seriously changed by quad bike incidents. They are very, very well known and actually not that hard to prevent either. Are they mostly a farmer working on his own in the paddock type of accident or what about employees? What's the mix there? Well, it definitely is a mix. And so I think it's important um, for us to kind of focus on what's the simplest number of facts that we need to understand in order to work out what to do to improve. I think that that's the important part here. We often get caught up in the details that don't actually help us improve. So whether you're the farm business owner, whether you're in the family, whether you're the whether you're older or younger but still an adult, whether you're a worker or a contractor, the inherent characteristics of the quad bike and the way that it's used will either determine that it is safe to use, and they can be very, very safe to use, or that they're supremely dangerous. But when we look at the statistics overall, what we know is is that on balance, they are one of the most dangerous pieces of equipment, which goes to show that we are not adequately controlling the risk at the broad level. Paul, have you ever had an accident with a quad bike? No, I've actually never owned a quad bike on the farm. We've always used two-wheel motorbikes and primarily because of the danger with quad bikes and the statistics that come with them. Okay, so that's a decision that you took from a safety point of view. Absolutely. We could do without them. We use four-wheel drive utes where we need them and the two-wheel motorbikes. Paul, let me ask you this. Do you think all accidents are preventable, given enough pre-thought, like you with quad bikes? Look, I think we can all do away with every accident with the fullness of hindsight. I think the problem is we don't get to record the accidents that we don't have. So if we're doing a good job with how we're training people and having appropriate machinery and guarding, we don't get a statistic on how many people didn't get injured today. So we're probably always going to have accidents, but it's trying to minimise the ones that are absolutely obvious and how do we take practical steps to improve our performance? Well, that's the nub, isn't it? And that's that's where I want to go now. I saw a document from the Rural Health and Safety Alliance uh, from 2018, and I'm going to quote it to you if you don't mind, one part of it. We already know so much about what to do to effectively reduce death, injury and illness. The question which often remains unanswered is how can we enable those things to happen in reality? So in other words, how in reality can we prevent those accidents? So 
Andrew, is this baffling even for the best in the business? Well, it's kind of interesting because it's actually really simple and really complex at the same time. So the risks and the fact that they cause very serious harm, and not just the human cost of production here, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of actual financial impact to the sector. So if you think about what that would equate to, you have to grow a lot of extra rice or red meat or whatever it is in order to actually address those losses that get borne by the system. So it's really, we know all of those things and we know what we need to do, like Paul was talking about, to control those risks. So we've actually got to create impact. We need an additional piece, which is how do we improve adoption and behaviour change? And so the way that the Rural Safety and Health Alliance and our RDC partners think about it is that we have to underpin those things by building capacity. And there's three parts to that. One is about leadership by saying this is important and the leaders that need to say it need to be throughout the entire system. So from the minister who is saying that this is important all the way through to our peak bodies, RDCs and local leaders. The second one is for capacity building about communication. So we have to actually improve how we share understandable and actionable information. And the third bit, which Paul touched on, is really, really important, which is about learning. So how as a system, as a supply chain, as a sector or an entire industry, how can we actually learn from what's working well, like Paul talked about, because you can't measure what hasn't happened. So we need to be focusing on, well, what does the presence of positives associated with safety, what does that look and sound like and how do we spread that? So they're the kinds of things that we think will actually move the dial for impact and you know building capacity along the way. Yeah, Paul, we'll come back to that, I hope, through the course of the podcast. But Paul, you've you've had some experience in the aftermath of some tragic accidents over time. And I noticed that in the past, you've advocated for a tops-down approach to safety. Is that right? And if that's the case, how would that work in your eyes? Yeah, look, I think Andrew really hit the nail on the head when he talked about leadership from the industry. And without leadership really engaging trying to change that mindset and behaviour of the industry, we're not going to get anywhere. It's not going to be a a bottom-up approach. It's a top-down approach that we've really got to engage with. So, look, I, I suppose on my journey on the way through, it's not something that one day you wake up and you say, today's the day I'm going to change what I'm doing. It takes a long period of time to turn the ship around for most businesses to get themselves to a point where they're actually looking for opportunities to improve their business with safety. Yeah, yours is an interesting case, isn't it? Because you've been involved in the safety side of things with GPA and others over the years. And at the same time, you've had a farm that, well, improvements could be made there, but going way back years ago. Yeah, absolutely. In the late 90s, I was involved with a fertiliser company in southeast Australia where we had to bring in some work health and safety systems into the business. And we very much as a board took a view that we would hand that responsibility on to the CEO. To him, he just had to be compliant and we almost washed our hands of it. At the same time, as a farmer, I think I was almost avoiding having to confront the issue that that my farm, along with that fertiliser business, needed to be compliant and doing a better job. So I'm not coming from a point of always being perfect. I think 
my starting point was one of really avoiding the issue and kicking the can down the road as far as I could so I didn't have to deal with it. Andrew, when you talk about leadership and how important that is, is that a code word for more regulation? Absolutely not. So it's really important here that we distinguish between these two things, which is safety as an outcome and compliance. So you can be compliant and still kill people in many ways, and you can also have a really safe business but not be compliant. And so it's really important that when we talk about leadership, the message here is not comply with the law because that's the minimum standard that's required of any business to have a license to operate in a modern society. So that is an uninspiring thing for us to aim for. What we're talking about here is 58 human lives every single year. We're talking about 58 funerals that had 58 families and all of the children and communities and farm businesses that got lost and folded and, you know, hundreds of years of continuous stewardship of land when there isn't anyone to take over. These are the really human costs associated with safety. So leadership is about us saying we stand for this because it's not acceptable for us anymore to say that dangerous work is just an acceptable working condition in the production of food and fibre in this country, because it's not. And there is no other sector that has not made massive progress in safety that hasn't realised that. And so that's the kind of commitment and the kind of vision that leaders in this sector need to embrace in order to make any kind of meaningful change. Okay, let me ask you, let me put you on the spot here, Andrew. What would you do different tomorrow that you see is not being done today in farm safety? So the first thing that anyone can do is to take a look, and I'm, and I'm keen to hear Paul's thoughts on this as well, is to take a look inside your business and say, what are the critical risks that either we think exist in our operation or that the statistics and data tell us? So we can't ignore the fact that quad bikes are potentially dangerous things. We can't ignore the fact that tractors, in many ways, even modern tractors, are super dangerous, etc. And that's going to be different depending on your operation. So having a look at those critical risks and asking yourself the question, can I genuinely say that I have done everything that's reasonable to manage that risk? And it's not sufficient for us to say, well, we just need to take more care. We need to be careful or pay more attention because the modern research says that that's actually not sufficient for safety to happen. What we need to do is to create safe systems of work, safe businesses. And like Paul talked about, there's some really practical things we could do with that. So that's what practically needs to happen. But unless our leaders in our sector are saying that this is important, then we spend our time and energy and resources on other things. Yeah, Paul, you uh, that's your journey, isn't it? That's what you actually did over the past few years is introduce some of those practices that Andrew's talking about. Yeah, I suppose I came from a very low base. We eventually got to a point within my own business that we decided enough was enough. We need to work out how do we eat this elephant? How do we take the first bite and where do we go? And I think that's almost the most important step is deciding that we're going to do something about it. So mindset, as much as anything, is, I think, the key to improving our industries. And from the state farming organisations and our national organisations, getting some really good buy-in to safety, I think, is the most critical step. You know, I can see that farmers, say, with employees, a few employees would be 
paying very close attention to safety, even if it's just for financial reasons in terms of workers' compensation. But I can see that farmers working on their own out in the paddock every day with, you know, only the talkback radio and their dog for company, they would take risks simply because they're trying to do a job with just themselves when it may even be a two-person job and therefore risk comes in. How do you get at those people? Yeah, Chris, that is a difficult one. And, and I've worked with my wife in the farming business together. And very often it's the couples that work together. There'll be a job where, where you really need two people. Often there's young children around because the family unit are all involved in the farm. So it does become a very, very dangerous situation. The thing is to think ahead and plan for some of those jobs where you think you might need someone, grab a neighbour, someone's come over to visit, look, can you give me a hand? I just need to go and do something. Try to avoid that dangerous situation where you're on your own. Andrew, is that where a lot of the accidents are happening with those single farmer or husband and wife out in the paddock? Because I can imagine that the more culprits style of farm with a number of employees probably wouldn't, I don't know, have the same numbers of accidents. It's probably a bit hard to give you a definitive answer on that from the data that's available. There's a spread. What I will say, though, is that the root of the discussion that we're having right here is about resourcing. It's about having a business, like Paul said, that plans and resources appropriately. It's not uncommon to hear a producer say, well, I don't actually have employees or even workers anymore because I'm worried about liabilities associated with health and safety. It's one of the most dangerous things that you can do. And not only that, because it puts you in those situations where you might be working solo, for example, but it's actually not good for business. And so this is actually probably one of the biggest opportunities that exist for improving health and safety, which is that when you improve health and safety, you improve your operations. When you improve your operations, you improve health and safety and profitability follows that. So I remember the frustration of a very senior agricultural leader saying to me a couple of months ago that a lot of producers don't even value their time when they're working on a machine and they go into town three different times in the same day for parts. That's just inefficient. You're burning money in the process. It's making your life harder. So in that sense, planning to have an appropriately resourced and professional business is not only going to be good for your bottom line, it's going to be good for safety as well. Yeah, it's exactly what Paul was saying. Age is also a factor here, Andrew. The average age of farmers, as you you know, is, is quite high and it does appear that the safety stats for people over 50 are quite high as well. How do you tackle that when people are perhaps just set in the ways that they do things? Yeah, so the average age of farmers, um, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I definitely know that it's over 50. So that representation in the statistics is unfortunately not surprising. In terms of what we do, I think that there's two things that we've got to do. One is that we have to make a decision about what's going to be practical for us to be able to change here. And so we aren't necessarily going to be making significant changes to people and operations that have been the same way for a very, very long time. That might sound hard to say or hard to hear, but we just have to be realistic about that. I think the biggest opportunity for us is actually in family businesses or businesses where there are other workers, neighbours, partnerships and things like that, because planning and succession planning, I think, is actually the critical thing. So succession planning is one of the number one causes for financial stress in farm businesses. But the discussion that needs to happen in your succession planning is, is at some point in time, dad, 
usually, has to wind back a bit. You know, the statistics of falls from heights and injuries and deaths associated with machinery in particular can be avoided if we're just planning to have the right people doing the job as well. And so that's not an easy thing to do. But if succession planning is one of the things that you're talking about, then safety needs to be a part of that as well. Okay, well, we're coming towards the end. But Paul, I just wanted to come back to you and your journey. Can you give us an idea of some of the things that you did when you realised that safety on your farm could be improved? Yeah, Chris, I think initially I went looking for the easiest way to start the compliance as well as the practical activities on farm. And it's not something you knock over in six months and that's done and you don't have to revisit it. It's an ongoing process. So for me, Safe Farming Tasmania had a really good management system with templates that I was able to just load all those templates and modify them to suit my business. And at the same time, my son came into the business and it was the easiest decision in the world to say, look, I'm going to hand the responsibility of this over to you. I want you to deal with the compliance stuff. We need to have toolbox meetings. We need to start putting signage around. We need to start looking at what's the lowest hanging fruit that's not gonna cost the world, where do we get the biggest bang for our dollar around the farm, improving some of the things that we do? And and we very quickly identified some pieces of machinery that were well past their use-by date. And the decision was just to get rid of those pieces of machinery. They were too risky to use. We did a risk assessment on them and said, look, they're past the use-by date. So that's been a process probably since about 2012 where we've really got our teeth into systems and processes and we're still at it and we're not perfect, but I think that's the journey most people get on is you don't know what you don't know until you get your teeth into it. Yeah. Paul, Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. It was a really interesting discussion about a very important topic. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Joining me today on AgriFutures On Air was South Australian grain grower Paul Daniel and Andrew Barrett, who's the Executive Officer of the Rural Health and Safety Alliance which is an alliance of agricultural R&D entities, including AgriFutures Australia, aimed at improving health and safety in primary production. My name is Chris Brown. Thanks for joining me today. You've been listening to AgriFutures On Air, a weekly podcast brought to you by AgriFutures Australia. 